0: One key to answering this question could be clean, renewable energy. The cheaper such energy becomes, the easier it is to reduce our impact on the planet while still raising living standards for people around the world. So, what does the future of the renewable energy industry look like? And how should that influence our willingness to embrace a more techno optimistic vision for humanity? I'll be discussing these questions today with Ramez Nam. Ramez is a computer scientist and futurist and the author of the Nexus trilogy an award-winning science fiction series which explores how neurotechnology could impact our society. Ramez, welcome to the podcast. Jim, it's great to be here. Do solar and wind energy pass the market test? And what I mean by that, are they affordable and competitive with fossil fuels sort of on their own, without subsidies or any kind of any kind of help? They are now. They
1: weren't always. But what happened was that we used policy to scale these technologies when they were very, very young. And as these technologies grew, they got tremendously cheaper in sort of a way similar to how computing has gotten cheaper through Moore's law. A general purpose law called Wright's law governs the reduction cost of other mass produced technologies. And so the cost of solar panels per watt of power they produce has dropped by a factor of 500 from 1975 to now. So now we have solar and wind that are cost competitive on their own without subsidies
0: and what drove that decline cost how much was innovation uh how much was that they're being produced in places that manufacture very cheaply like china is this is it an innovation story or is it sort of a supply chain story
1: it's much more of an innovation story than people think. People believe that it's really about low-cost labor in, in China, for instance, or low-cost debt there. But if you look at the cost of solar panels made in China or Germany or Japan or Thailand, they've all had a very, very similar price plunge. Now, the Chinese are still consistently ahead of everyone, though most Chinese uh company made solar panels, actually made in Southeast Asia now, not in China proper. But the, the bigger story than the delta in cost between making a panel in China versus making the U.S. is that across the board, we've had this incredible price reduction. And that's innovation in the technology itself, making it more efficient, more of the photons strike the solar panel, get turned into electrons, and innovation in the manufacturing process. We slice these the silicon wafers that we use will slice them thinner. We need less energy going in. There's fewer grams of silver, fewer grams of rare earths, all of that. Uh, we've reduced the material cost, labor cost, and energy cost
0: of making one of these. When we talk about solar, are we talking primarily about solar panels? But I know there are other kinds of solar technology, such as concentrated solar.
1: Yeah, we're about solar photovoltaics. So they are is concentrating solar power that uses mirrors to concentrate heat to make steam and drive a turbine. That technology still exists and still moving along, but what's dropped in price so much faster are these photovoltaics, the same things that, you know, your old calculator that was powered by a little bitty solar panel on it, that capture sunlight and directly turn those photons into electricity right there in solid state electronics.
0: So given the uh, the price of these panels now, is the story over the next decade, one of continuing declines, more innovation, or is it just getting these panels out there, kind of more of a deployment story? It's some of both.
1: Inside of the climate and energy world, you have people that argue about R&D based strategies versus deployment strategies. The reality is as you deploy, more of a tech, the private companies that are selling this tech and are in fierce competition with each other are constantly innovating to bring down costs to stay ahead of the game or stay competitive with their competitors. So deployment drives innovation. Now, there's some areas where we need more upfront R&D, need more government-funded R&D or Venture capital heavy investments, but that's not so much for technologies like solar that are already really quite mainstream. But things like some areas of storage, especially long duration energy storage, things like that, where we can still use a, a kick in the pants uh, or a you know acceleration from very directed government R and D to help get these things to the point where private industry can take over.
0: I remember as a kid hearing a lot about solar. I'm old enough that I, you know, I, I you know, I have a vague memory of sort of the oil crisis in the 1970s, and so, and I think Jimmy Carter was putting solar panels on the on the White House. Was is there like an alternate history where like where solar is where we moved way faster in solar, and solar would already be sort of a, a much more ubiquitous technology?
1: There might have been. Um, I think it's easy to tell that story and I think we could have gone faster, but I'm not sure it would have been radically, radically faster. Look, it took scale to get the costs to come down. Uh, So the sooner we invested in scaling these technologies, the faster they would have come down. Uh, We are where we are now. Climate change is real and it's problematic. But the good news is that because the cost of these clean energy technologies and related ones like electric vehicles and so on, because all is getting so cheap, it no longer looks like it's gonna be a sacrifice for us to clean up our energy system. Instead, going to clean energy is gonna make our air cleaner, our water cleaner, it's gonna reduce carbon emissions, and it's gonna make a better, cheaper energy system for all of us.
0: One common criticism is What happens if it's cloudy out or the wind doesn't blow?
1: What's your response? Yeah, solar and wind are variable. They are intermittent, if you will, Uh, but they're also somewhat predictable on the macro scale. They're mostly counter cyclical. The sun shines only during the day, wind blows more at night. There's a lot more sunshine in summer, a lot more wind, in winter. So the importance of grids of large-scale grids to integrate these resources matters a lot because some of the problems Texas is having and actually has very little to do with solar and wind. It's really coal plants and gas plants going offline there, primarily. But Texas's problem is that they're an isolated grid all by itself. They've, you know, during the blackouts in Texas, you've got neighboring states like Oklahoma that have huge amounts of power available very, very cheaply that can't deliver it a few hundred miles away because Texas has chosen to be on its own. So the value of grids is quite high and smart grids we can software control uh, demand to some extent to match it to when energy is available. But then of course, we have to address energy storage.
0: And right. energy... So let, me, let, me ask, let me ask you, so are the, so are sort of the technological hurdles uh, with uh, with uh, both these sources, are they with uh, the generation itself, panels and turbines, or is it with sort of or are they uh, sort of a grid battery technological issue? Yeah,
1: I think it's some of both. You know, there's three or four ways you're going to address this intermittency in the renewables. You can massively overbuild renewables, and because they're so cheap, you could do that so that even if you had only half the wind blowing, you overbuilt your wind turbines by a factor of two, you're fine. You can make grids bigger, or you can address this issue of storage. And storage used to look incredibly hard and incredibly expensive, but the cost of lithium-ion batteries has dropped by a factor of 10 just since 2010. 90% price decline in the last 10 years, and we have other battery technologies like flow batteries I'm an investor in a flow battery company that's going public right now via SPAC 1.1 billion dollars that can you know for a couple pennies can store 12 hours of electricity at grid scale and that allows you to solve not all but a whole lot of these variability and intermittency issues
0: are we running out of lithium i hear I, I hear that we're running out of that or that that's going to be a problem if you're talking about batteries You know, the clean energy
1: transition in general is going to produce a lot more demand for certain minerals and metals. And so I think whether it's nickel, copper, lithium, cobalt, that's used heavily in lithium-ion batteries also, you're going to see demand go up for all of those. Now, there's plenty of all of that stuff in the Earth's crust, uh, but current mines and current mining processes might not keep up with demand. So I think you will see some price oscillation in those resources, but more importantly, you'll see that greater demand is going to spur innovation to find new ways to produce those minerals and metals out of existing resources, out of ocean water. Scientific paper a week or two ago about a cost such way to produce lithium out of seawater where it's incredibly abundant. Uh, so things like that become cost-effective when there's enough demand for these resources.
0: So, what do you think a realistic target is for the proportion of our power being produced by these two sources? You know, a generation, you no, know, twenty-five years from now.
1: I think twenty-five years from now versus
0: that Like, what is the percent today? What? Where do you think we could be?
1: So, grid electricity in the U.S. is, let's say, it's about thirty percent clean in the U.S. The mix of a hydro, nuclear, solar, and wind. Solar and wind together or maybe 15% of U.S. electricity. Uh, 25 years from now, the grid ought to be, you know, up more than 80%, maybe 90%, maybe close to 100% clean electricity. It won't be just and wind. We'll still use hydro. Hopefully the nuclear industry will get its act together. We'll be using some nuclear. There's innovations in low-cost geothermal as well. Uh, but there's no reason, you know, on Capitol Hill, people have talked about and Biden's talked about, having a clean electricity standard of 80% of electricity being clean by 2030. That's nine years from now, 10 years from now, 80%, not 100%. That's doable. It's hard, but it's doable. It's the last 10 or 20% that gets the hardest. But getting to that 80% ballpark, I think, is a very good target for us. we we'll are to be talking about that on the scale of a decade or 15 years, not 25.
0: Is there things we should be doing with public policy to speed along or otherwise facilitate solar and wind? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you
1: asked, do these things need subsidies now? What we're seeing now is the opposite. We're seeing utilities uh, really propping up coal power plants to keep them running or refusing to open up their electricity systems to market competition because in an open market, solar and wind uh, would win. So I think there's... Policy work we can do on you know, forcing utilities to, to actually do economic planning five years out with lowest cost resources, uh, creating more competition in electricity markets, increasing the amount of transmission we build across the country. There's amazing wind resources in the Great Plains. There's amazing solar in the south, southwest, and west. And there's places that have such demand that don't have such great wind and solar. And we can't build transmission today because of NIMBY. It's cheap enough. We have the technology. It's highly efficient. Uh, but it's just property owners saying, no, you can't cross my land with your power line that's stopping us. That's a big area for policy as well.
0: I don't want to just replace dirty energy with clean energy. I I, I think we're in the future, we're going to need more energy. So is that a future, again, and you sort of touched on it earlier of solar and wind, but also assuming we need more clean energy. Um that we are going to need nuclear. And I think you also may have mentioned uh, geothermal. So is that is that sort of the mix that you see going forward?
1: Well, I think we need to develop what we call clean, firm resources. So uh, clean electricity resources that can be turned on whenever you want them, regardless of the weather. And maybe that's long duration storage. Maybe that's turning electricity to hydrogen when we don't need, when we have too much electricity, and then storing that hydrogen and then turning it back to electricity when you want it. That's what Europe is betting on. But it might be nuclear. It might even be fusion. It might be geothermal. Uh, so that's those are all investments that people are making in new technologies today. Uh, solar and wind can be the backbone of the new electricity grid. They'll be the cheapest cost the base price electrons, if you will, but we do need some other resources to help firm them up at hours if they're not doing well. Well,
0: what got you interested
1: in this? Really, I came into it from what I understand what the state of the planet was. I've Mm -hmm. been in tech my whole life, been a tech optimist, and it was really just a curiosity one day, swimming in a beautiful beach (laughs) in Mexico, uh, loving the water, falling in love with this crystal blue water, seeing litter on the shore and being like, well, why is there litter? And that got me thinking about other environmental things that I'd never really spent much time investigating. And so I thought I would look into the issue and how, what are the real environmental challenges? Is climate change real? And what's my responsibility as a human? And can we solve these
0: problems? But well, you call yourself a tech optimist. And what you're talking about, uh, I think, is a world of, uh, of growth and trying to find a way to power that growth in a, uh, in a sustainable way that doesn't ruin uh, the climate. Are people who sort of take the other side, who uh, think, you know, you're, you're on the wrong path, that growth is killing the planet, that these are just sort of temporary fixes Uh, to delay sort of the inevitable changes we're going to have to make as far as accepting certain living standards. Do they not understand? What do you think you get that they don't? I think I
1: get the long history of surpassing apparent limits and the long history of reducing pollution uh, or waste while increasing prosperity. I mean, if you go back to the 19 late 1960s we had the ozone hole we had air pollution smog in New York and LA and London that was you know so thick you could with a knife we had polluted water supplies we had the, the Cuyahoga river you know outside of uh, Columbus Ohio caught on fire because it was so covered with oil and chemicals and debris and so on we solved all of that. The air in the U.S. is the cleanest it's been. The water is the cleanest it's been in the U.S. Our rivers don't catch on fire. Smog is massively reduced from where it was in the late 60s and early 70s. And we solved that while you know doubling or tripling GDP per capita in that time, growing the economy, giving people more prosperity, so we can actually do this. Technology is amazing if we put our minds to it and use policy to drive it forward.
0: Do you do you uh, do you often debate these issues, or do you ever debate these issues with um, environmentalists who think, uh, who you know, who, who think what what you're what you're describing is uh, is the wrong path or even dangerous? Yeah, I debate with degrowthers all the time, and honestly, I think
1: degrowthers are dangerous because. You know, it turns out, you know, your this podcast is on AEI, your audience is is, you know, believes in economic freedom and so on. Oh, Businesses. Yeah. And it it. and it it turns out that what people, what really irks people about climate change is not the idea that climate change is real or that it's human-made. It's that it comes with this assumption that the solutions to climate change are gonna involve living smaller lives degrowth economic stagnation having to shrink our homes not travel so much not fly not drive and so on and that's hugely alienating but if i tell you and this is backed up by the facts we can address climate change and air pollution while making energy cheaper for everybody and allowing people to live the lifestyle they live now or a better lifestyle with you know more living space more travel options, more of the goods that you want, and so on, and we'll do it by using policy to, to continue to drive innovation in clean technologies. That's just far more politically viable, and it's true. You
0: no, know, I, I, I've been reading like what some of the you know with, with futurists and other forward thinkers, you know what they were writing in the uh, you know in the late fifties, nineteen sixties, and the vision they described is very much what, like what you described. It was it was an exciting vision of of expansion and growth and humanity living better, you know, colonizing the, you know, the, the, the solar system, cities you know cities in the under the ocean, and then that sort of changed. And people who began talking about the future began painting a very different vision of uh, uh, you know a vision of sort of retreat of 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 of, of, of sort of worse living standards um has that turned back at all or are people who are sort of future thinkers is that still the primary vision they're putting forward that's certainly the vision i see from hollywood but do do people who talk about the future a lot are they still sort of trapped in that sort of 1970s mode there are both optimistic and pessimistic
1: future thinkers i think you know from a narrative standpoint, you can't have a story where, and then everything got better because it just, it doesn't have any narrative tension. So I think one reason that you see dystopias or large challenges or whatnot in movies and, and novels and so on is you've got to have something for the, the heroes and protagonists to actually fight against and overcome. So that, that clouds the issue somewhat, but it's, it's undeniable that climate is on people's minds. I live in Seattle. We just went through a massive heat wave. Yesterday it was 108 degrees. This is in June. The previous record was 103. That was set during August, which is when typically it's hottest here. We've only been over before this year, 100 degrees three times. Uh, We passed 100 degrees three times this year. Portland was up to 115, uh, 116. It almost set a record for Vegas. And Portland. So I think when you look at that, people can get very pessimistic and very bleak because they see this real problem coming that we've underinvested in. Despite that, I do think that there's every possibility that we can build a world of more abundance, uh, a world where the average person on Earth and nearly every person on Earth is much better off than they were a generation ago. Uh, But it will take some effort, and there will be some things that get worse rather than better.
0: Can we get to a future of abundance? If most people have an apocalyptic or dystopian view of the future, if the image coming from books and movies and video games is so pessimistic, do you think we can still manage to build fantastic new technologies?
1: I don't think it's healthy for all the images to be dystopian. Uh, But I do think, even though dystopian images are more common, there are lots of positive images that are out there as well. And uh, Maybe you find them more in, in nonfiction than you do in fiction. You find them some in science fiction as well. So I think you need some mix of both. And I think the really dystopian stuff can motivate people to take action out of fear and concern. But I think you also need like, you know, a, a guide star, like something that you uh, find aspirational that you want to, to move towards. So I think we need both of those out there.
0: Um, the, the 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 technology at the heart of your Nexus trilogy is some is neuro technology. Now, that, is that a is that a that's hard science fiction? That's a thing that can happen. And what you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So in Nexus, I imagine a technology you swallow it as a drug, like a vial of silvery liquid. It gets into your brain, attaches to your neurons, and it makes uh, you know little Wi-Fi receivers, if you will. Uh, it's such that you, if you and I both had some, we would become weakly telepathic. We could communicate with one another because things are broadcasting to one another what we're thinking and feeling and doing. Uh, and that is really the ultimate interface. Like our entire human experience is what goes on inside of our brains. So I wanted to talk about this sort of technology that would allow people to communicate directly from person to person, allow them to install apps inside of their brain, allow them to have control over what's happening inside of their mind and their body, uh, and then really write a story that was about uh, freedom. It was about who gets to control this technology, who gets to decide who can use it and, and not use it. How will it be used by nation states, by private individuals,
0: and so on. Now, now this, this is a series that takes place uh you know you know 20 or 20 or 30 years from now and is that world and the way i i don't sort of divide between dystopian fiction and utopian Uh, the way i think about it is does fiction just show a terrible world um where there's no hope and you wouldn't want to live versus a world um that you might want to live in? not perfect like this world isn't perfect um but it is better in some key ways and you can imagine yourself living there is the world of the nexus trilogy a place you'd want to live yeah i
1: think it is i mean uh, again as an author i'm writing science fiction novels that are utterly thrillers so i have to keep the reader hooked so to right. me the the world nexus is an amazing technology and i show it being used for people communicating with one another meditating uh talking to their artistic kids, creating art together, experiencing music together, uh, all sorts of positive uses. But of course you can't focus on just positive uses to make an exciting book. So there's dystopian sure. things going on. There's a cold war between the US and China. There's secret government experiments and so on. So I, I tried to make it a world that was plausible in the future where most things have gotten better uh, but where there are real tensions and real challenges to be addressed as well.
0: And do you think the challenge to these technologies ultimately is a challenge of innovation and science? Or is a challenge, a policy challenge that, we've ar- that I, I, we're already sort of worried about robots taking jobs? I've heard about robot taxes and a lot of people are worried about CRISPR. And in the series, I guess the government sort of effectively bans neurotechnology how much do you worry about innovations? And this has sort of been the history where people have resisted innovations that becoming a, a, a problem going forward in the future. People seem very, people seem very worried. I guess overall people seem more worried about technology in many ways today than they do excited by it. And I'm worried that will end up being reflected in how we govern these technologies.
1: I think there is a lot of fear of biotechnology, neurotechnology, Technologies that affect the self. There's not as much fear about digital, um, and I think it's appropriate to regulate these technologies for safety and to apply some degree of caution. And at the same time, the promise of technology is enormous. Like leaving of science fiction, just look at how fast we got COVID vaccines. Before COVID, the average time to create a new vaccine was eight years. The shortest vaccine, shortest time limit of vaccine ever had been four years. We got, I mean, the, the real COVID vaccines were actually designed in about 36 hours, <laughs> then went through one year of testing to get to the market. So these technologies are actually utterly, utterly amazing. Should we regulate things for safety? Should we have like good protocols around stuff? Absolutely. But fundamentally, I think there is a huge upside to biotech that people are often quite resistant to. And so part of what I was trying to write with Nexus was a world where people were very afraid of these technologies and that by being so afraid, they'd regulated them out of the official market and into the black market, where they were less regulated, less safe and so on as a sort of an analogy of the war on drugs in a certain way as well. And that I think is not the right answer.
0: My guest today has been Ramez Nam. Ramez, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jim, it's been a pleasure.